identifying systemic biomarkers indicating risk for AMD would be a game changer. But how can we find those biomarkers? I'm Greg Notstein here with Scott Chriswanis, and you are listening to New Retina Radio from Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. We spoke with Dr. Joan Miller, whose work with the Harvard Retina Metabolomics Program focuses on identifying specific metabolites that might be useful in real-world practice. And Dr. Yannick Lederman stopped by to fill us in on this state of AI in the OR. How far away are surgeons from interacting in real time with artificial intelligence? We've got those answers coming up. Systemic biomarkers indicating the presence of or risk for AMD would allow retina specialists to identify patients with early disease or those at risk of progression and would pave the way for personalized therapy that may ultimately maximize the potential of intervention. Now we just have to find those systemic biomarkers, which is, of course, easier said than done. Luckily, several groups are pursuing this goal. One of those groups is the Harvard Retinal Metabolomics Program, and a member of that group is here with us today. Dr. Joan Miller is professor and chair of ophthalmology at Harvard Medical School and chief of ophthalmology at Mass Ioneer and Mass General. Dr. Miller, welcome to the show. Thanks, Scott, and thanks, Greg. It's great to be with you. A handful of groups have been researching potential biomarkers in AMD for some time with mixed results. Tell us where we've been so far. Well, thanks, Greg. People have been searching for biomarkers in the blood, particularly for really a couple decades. And some of the earlier attempts were looking at C-reactive protein and homocysteine, and more recently looking at lipids. And while these seem to play a role, the results are really inconsistent. And we and others have started to look at metabolomics, which is talking about the small metabolites that are breakdown products of all the cells activity. And you can actually detect them in different fluids and in tissues. Tell us more about metabolomics as it relates to the eye. Which tissues or samples are on the table here? You can measure and detect uh, metabolites in different fluids and even in tissue. So we can look in the plasma, you can measure them in urine, and you can measure them in aqueous humor, or you could even measure them from tissue if you obtain that from a surgical specimen or perhaps autopsy tissue. Uh, we Probably most of the work has been done in the plasma. We investigated urine a little bit because it would be so easy and non-invasive, but at least for AMD, it turns out that we don't think it's a great uh, fluid to pursue. We did not see differences there and that may relate to the fact that lipid metabolites, as we'll probably get to, seem to be the most important metabolites, and they just they don't come out in the urine to the same degree. Understood. So in your presentation at AAO this year, you pointed to a handful of groups who are investigating metabolomics in AMD. They included the Osborne Group, which is out of Vanderbilt, the I-Risk Consortium, which is an international group led by a Dutch researcher, uh, Den Hollander. And uh, you talked about the Harvard Retinal Metabolomics Program, which is the group that you're a part of. Can you tell us more about the group you work with and what the team has found so far? Yes, our, our group, the Harvard Retinal Metabolomics Program, is led by Deba Hussein and involves our group uh, at Mass Ioneer 
and also uh, collaborators in Coimbra in Portugal and started eight years ago uh, with a research project with a postdoc, Inez Lanes, who now is, is also part of our group in Boston. And we also collaborate with the Harvard Chan uh, School of Public Health and the Broad Institute and the Channing Lab at the Brigham. So, so big uh, collaborative group. And I think that's the way a lot of research goes these days. But we have been looking at metabolites in AMD patients and we're able using plasma to identify 544 metabolites, 28 of which had significant Q values, which means they really seem to be different between AMD patients and controls. And we also looked across the stages of disease. And we did this investigation using uh, mass spec, uh, which is the, 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 the testing uh, system that we used. Most of the significant metabolites seem to belong to the lipid and amino acid pathways. So glycerophospholipids and also purine, taurine, and hypotaurine. The IRIS consortium is a, is a large group uh, from Europe led by Anneke Den Hollander, and they also have been looking at AMD. They've used NMR or nuclear uh, magnetic spectroscopy to, uh, to test for the metabolites. And they have a, a bigger uh, group of patients, but using that approach, again, from plasma, they found 60 metabolites that are associated with AMD. And again, the most significant metabolites, interestingly, are in the lipid and amino acid pathways. So I think that it's interesting that our two groups, you know, different patient populations and actually using different platforms have found, you know, really grossly similar results. And to that point, do they have any other findings that are similar? Yes, both groups have also looked at uh, metabolomic genomic associations. So there you take the metabolite information and look at the genomics of, of the individuals that you're testing. And both groups have found uh, polymorphisms associated with the LIPC gene. And in fact, the same two polymorphisms from, the both, from both the IRIS consortium and the Harvard group. Again, really probably substantiating the role of this LIPC gene in, in AMD pathogenesis. And then there's some other associations that you know, one group may find and the other did not and vice versa. And that is probably not unexpected in, in part because we are using these different platforms, the NMR and the mass spec to do these tests. But overall, it, it's, it's promising that the, the similarities are, are evident in the two approaches. What does the future of metabolomics look like in AMD research? Well, I think the metabolomics research is really promising so far and starting to point us in some interesting directions. And the, the testing that the IRIS Consortium and our Harvard group have done is what's called untargeted metabolomics. And that gives you an idea of the pathways involved and the metabolites that seem to be dysregulated, but it's actually not quantitative. So one of the next steps is to do something called targeted metabolomics, where you really can do a quantitative analysis more in depth and really uh, substantiate these biomarkers and validate them. And then we also, I think, want to continue to combine the metabolomics data with other big data sets. So we've started in both groups to look at the genomic associations, but there's reams, of course, of clinical data, imaging data, and functional data which really, when we put it all together, I think we'll be able to really sort out uh, pathogenesis of AMD better and uh, develop some prognostic information as well as hopefully personalized therapies. 
Our final question is about some of those personalized therapies, right? About a real world application of what this research could yield. So could you sketch for the audience a possible practice pattern or practice scenario that might occur, say, 10 or 15 years after um, some biomarkers are able to be identified? Well, thanks. I think we all have been impressed with what we've been able to do with neovascular AMD and the fact that anti-VEGF drugs work so well across that whole spectrum. And we, and certainly our patients have been frustrated that we can't do the same thing in the earlier stages of AMD. So I think what we are hoping to do with the biomarkers and combining all these data sets of the clinical data and imaging and, and functional testing is to really tease out what we expect are subtypes of early AMD. So we think we will be able to define, you know, say subtype A that is really driven in this in a particular pathway and will probably require a specific treatment. So you or, or your loved one would come in and be tested with, uh, you know, the blood tests that we would need for the metabolomics, uh, some imaging testing, functional testing, and we'd put that together and say, oh, well, you, you fit into this subtype and we have a treatment for you and, and this is what we'll do. And the goal would be to be able to uh, really characterize these patients, treat them better and prevent any vision loss in AMD. That is a promising future. It can't get here soon enough. Dr. Miller, thanks for coming on New Retina Radio, sharing the details from your presentation. Well, thanks so much. And thanks for letting me join you today. I really enjoyed it. We've heard a lot about the use of artificial intelligence as a screening tool for retinal disease. But what about the use of AI in the surgical theater? At this year's AAO annual meeting, Dr. Yannick Lederman gave his colleagues a preview of how AI might soon be coming to an OR near them, and he's here today to give us that same preview. Dr. Lederman is a vitreoretinal surgeon at the Eye and Ear Infirmary at the University of Illinois at Chicago. He's also a co-founder of Microsurgical Guidance Solutions, a surgical technology company. Dr. Lederman, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Scott. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we get into your AAO presentation, let's go over some vocabulary terms. There are a lot of distinctions and differences between some terms in artificial intelligence, but the definitions are very important. So let's talk about the terms artificial intelligence, machine learning, and deep learning. Yeah, you know, we hear these so much now in the media, and the, the lay press, but as well increasingly in medicine and ophthalmology. I think the most important thing to understand artificial intelligence, which is the, the, the most broad term in, in the umbrella, is really just the use of machine-based intelligent agents that mimic cognitive functions, that, that mimic the kinds of things that we do as clinicians and surgeons uh, that we associate with the human mind, such as learning and problem solving. So that's really, really broad. Um, machine learning is a subset of that. And that's something to, important to understand because it, it is the basis for a lot of these so-called agents or algorithms that are being applied to clinical problems. And it's really just computers learning from data using algorithms to uh, perform tasks without being explicitly programmed. So, you know, the, the easiest example that I can give you uh, is perhaps in, in robotics or even autonomous driving. Uh, instead of programming a car to go 100 yards and then turn right, you would basically uh, use algorithms that would understand 
stand, if you had to get from point A to point B, it means navigating along the streets and turning where you need to turn. Uh, and so um, deep learning is basically that same um, machine learning approach, except it's using what we consider a very complex structure of algorithms that function in many ways like the human brain. Understood. Now, your colleagues have some experience in the real world with AI in retina practice. We've been hearing about how diabetic retinopathy screening has leveraged AI technology to screen patients that might be at risk for disease. What have we learned in that sector and uh, how will it inform what your presentation is about, which is surgery? You know, diabetic eye disease and diabetic retinopathy screening is in, in many ways the, the poster child, I think, for the application of, of AI in ophthalmology diagnostics. Um, you know, for a couple of reasons, it was one of the first problems that was tackled. Uh, it's the only area where we do have an, an FDA-approved device uh, to perform that task. Uh, and part of it is also because in a, in a very high-profile way, uh, our colleagues at, at DeepMind, at, at Google, uh, published a, a really seminal paper in this area several years ago, applying the tools of artificial intelligence to uh, so-called grading fundus images, uh, meaning determining the, the degree of retinopathy that was present. Uh, and in many ways, this serves as a sort of beacon of, of success for um, other projects uh, to go after. But you know, for, for me, as someone who's interested in data science, I think one of the most fascinating elements of that project uh, that, that maybe not all of your listeners, listeners are familiar with is that uh, for those patients, in addition to the level of diabetic eye disease that they had, we certainly had other clinical data. For example, uh, those patients' blood pressure uh, and their um, self-ascribed gender. And so one thing that was very surprising is that the application of those algorithms was, was able to divine some results uh, that we as clinical practitioners and data scientists didn't necessarily anticipate. You know, one good example is that these algorithms were able to just from examination of an image of the retinal fundus uh, to predict the blood pressure within a really narrow range, maybe 10 points of the systolic and di diastolic pressure. So that's, you know, that's surprising, but maybe not shocking because we can imagine, well, if you have a, a tool that really can analyze those retinal blood vessels and look for uh, changes that are associated with blood pressure, at least that kind of makes sense, although we, we can't do that as clinicians. But even more remarkably, they were able to, uh, with really high accuracy, tell us the gender of those patients. And that's something that we as humans have no idea cognitively uh, how to do ourselves or, or even how to understand how that net, those networks were really making those predictions. That's fascinating, a little frightening. The ghost in the machine is something that we don't quite understand. Let's move to your presentation in particular, which is about using artificial intelligence in surgical guidance. Can you talk to me about a few specific ways in which surgery might be improved by integrating AI systems? Yeah, so I think the best way that I can explain it is probably to use some analogies to how all of us have now been accustomed to driving. And in fact, a lot of this technology, a lot of the ideas that we got were co-opted from the automotive space and some technology that's already implemented cars and, and in the, the self-driving space as well. Uh, so any of us who've been driving for more than five or six years 
you know, remember when there really was no automation, very little, you know, digital things about our, our vehicles and effectively the driver is sort of exclusively controlling everything. And that's kind of how things are for us in the operating room. Right now, uh, we use relatively sophisticated, in some cases, visualization systems. And the surgeon takes in all of that data, visually and otherwise. And then it's the surgeon who interfaces with uh, all of our instruments, whether they're handheld instruments or whether they're complex instruments like our uh, cataract phaco emulsification devices or our vitrectomy consoles that are digitally controlled, but we really are the entire link. Uh, and you know, for me, the excitement of applying some of these AI tools is both in the area of enhancing the information that we can get from our visualization systems. So in addition to just seeing what we see on the screen, applying AI, uh, we're able to detect things happen during surgery and uh, get information that we might otherwise not be able to get just by looking at what's happening. Um, and the, the other broad area, of course, is that we can interface directly our visualization instrumentation with our device. So in the same way, by analogy, that when we drive a car and we have information maybe about navigation and where we're going, but if we don't stop quickly enough, we get a warning there. If we still don't stop quickly enough, we might have those visualization systems in our car interface directly with the brakes and, and, and you know, help us in a way that's even faster than human reaction time. So we can do those same things during surgery for a cataract surgeon or a retina surgeon who may be close to aspirating something delicate with their instrument unintentionally like the lens capsule or the retina, um, we can receive feedback from our devices that that, that may be imminent, you know, close to happening because of fluidic conditions in the eye. And if we're still not reacting, potentially we can actually modulate the fluidics, the vacuum and the flow in the same way that, that we modulate those with our foot in the same way that we modulate the gas and the brake with our foot in the car, we can have a, a direct interaction between what is detected with our surgical visualization instruments and ourselves, but also our devices. I know that it's easy to imagine a world where AI is now just performing surgery, right? But what you're describing is a world where AI is an adjunct. It's able to uh, govern certain parts of surgery that maybe humans are not best at or not better than AI at, such as imaging-based tasks, um, and then allow the surgeon to actually perform the specific steps that their training and experience and expertise allows them to execute. Is that about right? Is that how we should think about AI, that it's an adjunct and not necessarily something that's replacing the surgeon or the clinician? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Scott. I mean, um, something like uh, real-time surgery is is so complex right now that that is really far beyond our capabilities. But even a much simpler subset of interpreting an image, whether that's something that we see on a screen in real time uh, as video, or even a single, let's return all the way back to that diabetes example, a single static image of uh, someone's retina who has diabetes. You know, our algorithms are, are getting increasingly better at helping us with the task in terms of just an efficient way of saying, is there diabetes in this retina or not, right? A sort of yes or no up and down binary question. Uh, but we're what we're really far from is then once that determination is made, is that a patient that needs to be seen, they need to be counseled, they need to be educated about different treatment options, about their diabetes, that, that's something that's so much more complex. So I think what you're speaking to is something that, that has a name, and that's the, the paradigm of human-centered AI. And, and really, that can be summarized by the fact that AI by itself can bring some value 
and certainly much more value is the clinical provider. But when you give the tools of AI to the clinical provider, we probably can do our greatest benefit as clinicians. And sometimes that may be as a force multiplier, right? If we have tons of people with diabetes that need to be screened and just not enough humans to do that, well, those screening devices may help us in that way. But even if it's just that one-to-one -one encounter, uh, sometimes those, uh, those agents may help us be more efficient at interpreting that one image in that cross-section of time. But in terms of then all of the art and, and science of medical decision-making and talking to patients and communicating, uh, I think we're, we're really far away from that. So the concern that we're going to be replaced by robotic clinicians and surgeons is uh, still in, in the realm of science fiction. Well, Dr. Lederman, this was a fascinating look into the future and the potential future of ophthalmology. Thanks for joining us today and congrats on your AAO presentation. Thank you so much, Scott. It was a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for joining us on another episode of New Retina Radio's coverage of the 2022 AAO annual meeting. If you've missed past episodes, go back in your podcast feed. We've covered a handful of other talks and we still have more coming. 